Yes, we're going to go to the Joe Batan interview right now. Hello. Yes, hello. So we're looking forward to seeing you September 23rd at Salarosa in Montreal. I, I was told that you, this is your first time in Montreal. Yes, it is. I've been to Canada before, but this is the first time I'll be in Montreal. I'm really excited about it. So what took you so long, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it took, it took mm. people to finally realize that they could get in touch with me, I guess. I don't know what it was, but uh, I'm happy to be going and uh, looking forward to having a blast. Right on. So let's get into the nitty-gritty and, and a little bit about your career and your life. There are certain things I looked up and I was researching. I was wondering if you can fill me in about it. In uh, 1965, you started a, a Latin band called Latin Swingers. Was there anything produced on album for, for that? Uh, no, that, that group never got to uh, really surface as uh, the original group, but they were the original group that I started with playing in the streets of New York and Harlem. Right. Uh, actually, some of those members were included in my first album, Gypsy Woman, recorded in 1966. But I guess that was the inception of uh, Joe Batan starting a band. I was told that Gypsy Woman was recorded in one day. How correct is that? No, that's very correct. What had happened was that uh, we were so nervous as youngsters. You know, at that time, we had the youngest band in Latin music. And when we got to the studio... Uh, we had rehearsed everything, and of course, we didn't use musical charts back then. And everything was done by memory. And we were very fearful that the guy was going to stop us in the middle of everything and tell us to go home. <laughs> so we recorded one song after another, and before we knew it, we had completed a whole album right. of nine songs within four hours. And I guess the musical director, which was Johnny Pacheco, was so amazed that a bunch of young kids could do something like that at one time. And, you know, it was only a four-track studio, so it was amazing in itself when we told that story. Yeah. Not to put you on the spot or anything, and um, I, bet, I read your history, and I knew you overcome some adversities back in the day, and what came up was the, the group, the Dragons, um, yeah. which was back in the day. So was this after the Dragons, after you got um, you overcame yeah, your adversities? Yeah, it was after the Dragons. Actually, I was in the Dragons back in 1957 all the way through a stretch of uh, back 1959 when I got um, sent to Reformatory in, in 1960, and it was under the tutelage of a Mark Francis. Uh, while I was in incarcerated uh, at the Reformatory, I started playing music together. I started to start my own band when I was eventually released in 62. Then, of course, I violated, went back, and then I had another stint, and I came back out in 1965. And that was the end of that uh, that behavior on my part. I started with Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm so thankful. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're thankful, Joe. We're thankful for having you. I'm really intrigued with the Boogaloo doo-wop concept because usually it's just Latin soul, which pretty much sums up Boogaloo. So why doo-wop? How did you get into doo-wop? Well, I've been listening. I, I grew up on doo-wop. Uh, I go back to heartbeats. You know, Shep and the Limelighters, the Flamingos, you know, and then later on came Rock and Roll with Frankie Lyman. But there was always that uh, R&B sound that we were not subjected to here in New York for a long time. It was like sort of underground because 
most of the stations were Anglo. Right. And they didn't play that type of music. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until uh, the arrival of uh, Dr. K and, and Alan Freed that came on later. But before that, you had to really dig deep to find these stations on the radio. Mm-hmm. So I grew up on that music, and it was sort of like a, a trend, a moving trend at, in Harlem. Right. You know, with the New Rican sound and Spanish Harlem and black Afro-Americans. You know, we had put this together. And uh, that's what was our pastime. So growing up with that music, Latin came into my life later on, and then I was able to merge that because it was just down my alley. Right. I sung all these songs where a lot of the generation that was younger hadn't heard before. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. so these songs were like in my repertoire to right. do, you know, a lot of the, the covers that I've done. And right. of course, I gained a lot of success doing that. Right. I've got another question, which is kind of um, interesting. Um, I know you did eight um, albums with Fania, but you also had a um, record company called Ghetto Records. Was that before your eight recordings with Fania? No, actually, it was in between. It was in between. Yeah, I was still with Fania, and I guess I had some uh, falling out with Fania at the time. And what, 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 what a lot of record companies did at that time, especially with Fania and the New York labels, is that they wanted the musicians not to be bright. Uh, they wanted you to attempt, they wanted you just to be musicians. And if you ventured into anything else in the business, it sort of upset uh, the mode of what was norm at that time. So musicians were supposed to stay in their place, and of course I wasn't that type of guy. Right. I was very rational, mm-hmm. and I wanted to expand my knowledge of the music business. You know, everything from selling records from my trunk, you know, going and <laughs> learning marketing. <laughs> Right. I did all these things before right. they did that East Coast, West Coast thing right. uh, with rap music. I was doing that. So, you know, what, what, what was fearful was that here's this guy starting a record label. And, uh, of course, I was blackballed. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really getting my share of what I thought I was worth. And uh, this was my way of, uh, you know, uh, getting rebelling. So what kind of stuff did you... Sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Joe. So what kind of um, style was it on Ghetto Records? Was it all Latin-based music? Yes, it was all Latin-based because there was one artist that had a similar background to me, Paul Ortez, who did Tender Love. Mm -hmm. And we knew right away that that record was going to be a hit. Uh, It was similar to my style of, of doing records, and I produced it. And lo and behold, it became very, very popular in New York, and that's when everybody's eyes started to turn around and say, well, look, if this young man can do that with another label, then we have to be very careful. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, read that you produced albums for uh, Papo Felix and Eddie LeBron. Is that, um, right. is that Eddie LeBron from the Le- LeBron Brothers? No, no, no. He just happened to have the same last okay, name. Okay, same last he's name. Talented, he's a talented piano player from Brooklyn. Okay. And also, well, I get that question all the time. Okay, yeah. I was wondering myself. It's like, wow, that could be the LeBron brothers. That's awesome. No, no, no. It wasn't the LeBron brothers. Okay. And, so, and who was Papa Felix? Papa Felix was a young man that was in the neighborhood, and uh, they needed a, a, a vocalist. Mm-hmm. And we found him, and we put him together with... Um, with, with, with uh, Eddie LeBron and the other groups, and we recorded. Of course, I used them in uh, Ray Rodriguez's album also, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Since then, um, you know, we've lost touch, but I'm sure that, that he's still around somewhere. 
Yeah, your, your career has been really colorful. Uh, from the moment I start reading, I was just like, wow, this is crazy. Like, coined the phrase Sal Sol. Um, you, right. You were the forefront of the disco movement um, during that era. And also um, um, rap in terms of um, rap or clapo. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can actually go bit by bit. First, let's start with Sal Sol. So okay. that, that was well, 1973. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Well, you know, what happened was is that when I left Fanny and finally they gave me my release, uh, I found myself lost because that's the only company that I, I ever knew. And I looked up for some record labels and actually there weren't any. You know, so what I did was is I found this little company that was dealing in Latin music and uh, they had not touched the forefront of what I was doing and I went there and I sold them on the idea of what I wanted to do and they took a chance. The next thing I knew, I was promoting the record on the radio, doing the whole thing as a promotion person, A&R and the whole thing. And eventually the record took off. We saw a soul record. And uh, after that, of course, they didn't want to let me go, so we signed the deal. <laughs> and the deal was that I would have my own record label and be a partner with them. And, of course, I coined the name South Soul Records. Was and it, I guess we became on history, you know. <laughs> was the distribution only in the States or was it uh, worldwide? Well, it started in the States only. But then after they made a deal with RCA and, and they took um, Rapple Clapple and the bottle, that went uh, internationally. And as a result of that, Joe Batan's name uh, spread to other parts of the world. Right. Um, Even that's, though it had gone, but it hadn't touched the surface. Hmm? That's another thing. You just you just mentioned the bottle, which is which is a Gil Scott Aaron track for everyone who's listening right now. Right, exactly. But um, I read that there was a young David Sanborn on that album. Yes, that's a long story. We had the session planned. What had happened was Gil Scott Aaron and I recorded that tune, but they were having some difficulty in pressing financially, and they couldn't get the rest of the record. The song was already a big hit in New York. So at a tribute to him, I said, well, how could I touch this song? I wouldn't attempt to sing it. So we tried to do it instrumentally, and we had written the, uh, the arrangement with Marty Scheller. I gave him the ideas, and then after that, we called the session men in. What had happened was that everybody showed up to the recording at the same time, which is not the norm. We normally <laughs> do the rhythm first, right. and then the horn. Everybody showed up, nice. and everybody was excited. And I said, well, Joe, what do you want to do? You want to record this? We got to go home. You want to hit? Let's do this. I said, okay. So then walks in this little white guy. We didn't know who he was. And I said, who's that? He said, that's a sax player. Okay, so we counted off the song, and he blew that sax, and the rest was history. We had never heard somebody set a studio on fire like this guy. And when he played that song, it, what's ironic about it is we took one take. He said, we can't even touch it. That's it. And the next thing we knew, the first week we sold 80,000 records and the bottle went on to the national charts. Nice. Okay, here's an awkward question for you. Are you comfortable with the, the, the title, King of Latin Soul? <laughs> well, I never say it myself. I mean, you know, I asked some people about that. And, you know, I've always been known as the ordinary guy. That, that fits me much, much, uh, it suits me much better. Right. You know, there's only one king in this world, and that's the big boss, the Lord. Right. You know, so, I mean, people call me that I can't stop that. It doesn't hurt my career because I had this discussion with some friends and they said, well, Joe, you know what? I said, how do you feel about that? He says, well, he said, if people know what you went through, they would understand. He says, I understand. You deserve it. Right. So that coming from fellow musicians made me feel a little better. But that always, every time I hear that word, I, I cringe a little because uh, 
I don't want anybody to think that I'm that arrogant that I think that I'm the king of anything. You know what I mean? Right, but if you, right. if you know me, you 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 wouldn't even make that synonymous with me when you see me perform. Uh, you would know that I'm just an ordinary guy. And that's mm-hmm. the only way I'll ever have it. And I think that's part of why my popularity has grown around the world. Right. My approach with my audience. Mm-hmm. There was mention of a track called The Prayer, uh, which was an important track for you. Um, it makes yeah. references to um, St. Paul. And I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that it, it's a track that actually um, was done after you overcame your adversities. Am I correct? That's true. Okay. That's true. So what can you tell me? Well, it was done back in the 70s. But, you know, what, for some reason, I knew when I was recording that record why I did it. And it was my way of saying thank you to the big boss for giving me the talent to sing. But actually, I never I never ventured the song on, on my venues. I never sang the song, maybe once. Okay. And I guess I had those two brief stints uh, with life-threatening stints where I almost died twice. The record became more significant in my life. Wow. Now I don't play mm-hmm. anywhere without doing those songs around the world. Mm-hmm. And what I've been able to do is get another fan base to Joe Batan, which is not me, it's him doing the work. Um, but when I do the prayer, it brings people together from all walks of life and, and, and it shows that there's hope. So when you say St. Paul, I like to think about my travels uh, are not an accident. When I go to different places, the same way I'm coming to Montreal. Actually, you know I'm coming there for the Joe Batan song, but I'm coming there to pray for everybody also. Nice. And it's something that I have to do in my life. It's a part of me, it's what I want to do, and I know it's something that I need to do to build that cornerstone. No longer can I live just for Joe Batan anymore. You mm. see, I'm insignificant. The big boss comes first, and everything else comes second. So if I can share the word with the world or with people and help them in anything with their troubling uh, situations, then, then I'm thankful. Okay, so for all us ignorant uh, biblical folks, why St. Paul? <laughs> so why St. Paul? Why St. Paul? Yeah. Well, you know, he, he was a sort of missionary. Okay. He went around the world preaching the word, and he went through so many countries, and he went through a lot of adversity, you know? He, 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 he did this, and he, he, it took him all around the world from what I've, what I've read about about him, and I find myself doing the same thing. And for what you don't know is that most of these countries that I've gone to, maybe 50% do not believe in God anymore. Right. You know, and uh, and that's very difficult to to sing and get up there and talk about your spirituality when people might not understand. So I had to understand when I approached people in different countries. And some people, uh, well, their explanation was, well, Joe, you know, we're not bad people. It's just that a lot of this religion stuff was forced down upon us when we were under different types of governments, you know? So it's giving them a hard way to go when somebody comes up there and, and tells them about Jesus or about the Lord when they have been subjected to uh, being forced to listen to the Word of God, like it happened in Spain for so many years. And so many years they weren't allowed to hear music uh, like I play. And now it, it has opened up. So now not with that opening up, so is the word of the Lord opening up around the world again, and it's something that we need. Yeah. Um, God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Rapper Clapo was um, 
out, came out before Rapper's Delight, I was told. And um, I heard the reason why it wasn't um, on the air before Rapper's Delight is because you had problems with the publishing rights. Can no, well, that's part of it. But no, the real truth uh, was that they weren't ready. Okay. Were, when I went, approached a lot of record stores with this new uh, concept of rapping, uh, they would tell me, Joe, what's the matter with you? You don't sing anymore? What is this baloney you bring in here talking on the record? I said, it's something new. I couldn't convince anybody. It wasn't until Rapper's Delight came out that everybody started calling me back. Right. And saying, Joe, bring that uh, record that you had. We want to do it now. I said, oh, now you want to do it. And that's what happened. So when you think about uh, Rapper Crapper being out first, uh, that's partly true because there was Fatback Band who had a record, I think, way before Rapper Crapper and Rapper's Delight. Right. But what, what had happened was that... Uh, I was just fortunate to get it played in Europe, and Holland took a chance, and from there on it took off. So we battled uh, from one country to the other. Who's going to get the top spot, Rapper's Delight or Rapper Clapper? So for a long time as an individual, I was known as the forefront of, of rap music in, in, um, in, uh, in Europe, right. around the world. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the United States gave us a difficult time in playing it. Yeah. So, um, and of course, what, what you probably meant with the publishing was that the United Kingdom uh, wouldn't play it. The discos played it, but they wouldn't play it unless I gave them part of the publishing. That's right. That's and correct. I, yeah. And I refused. Yeah. My, um, sorry, my correction there. Um, <laughs> so after um, you came out, you released Baton 2, which was uh, 1981. Um, you ended up actually retiring for a while. And, um, yes, yeah, so what I did instead of raising a family. Uh, with my wife and my kids, and we were involved in the martial arts. We were trying to get um, my family into the Olympics, which we knew were coming. But what, what unfortunately happened was that we studied Shotokan, and when the Olympics came, there was Taekwondo. So, you know, not for not. But, you know, it was a good um, experience in our life. Right on. Um, yeah, this is ongoing, Joe, and I really appreciate this. But uh, okay, I'm, 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 I'm a big I'm a big fan of Jocelyn Brown, and I was uh, told that you were responsible for exposing exposing her to um, your music and also to one of your yes. albums uh, called Sadie. Well, yeah, that story goes way back. Her name was Jocelyn Brown back then. Uh, actually, Gordon Edwards from Cornell Dupree and some of the Encyclopedia Soul were some of the studio musicians I used, and we were looking for a vocalist. Uh, to do some background and some singing. And he mentioned this young lady. He says, well, she sings like I play bass. And Gordon Edwards was one of the premier bass players in disco music. So she came up to a young girl, and when we heard her voice, we, she, we fell out. She had so much soul that she could take a tune and just take it to new heights. And she was no different. And uh, that, that experience got her exposed. Right. So she did with me. She did a couple other songs. Uh, on, on different albums, and um, her career, career skyrocketed after that. Right. So not only did you give, yeah, not only did you give us um, South Soul Orchestra, you gave us Jocelyn Brown for the disco era. That's that's pretty hot. Yes, yes, that's pretty yes, hot, yes, Joe. Thank you. That's pretty hot. And um, I, I realized you played with a whole bunch of people. I'm, I'm just going to name a few because these are the ones that really interest me. John Faddis, for example. Um, yes, blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, yeah, blood, sweat, and tears. Bernard Purdy. Uh, were there any memorable highlights? And um, you must have some stories. There must be a memorable highlight 
yeah. Bernhard Party played on a lot of my songs and a lot of the hit records, Crystal Blue Persuasion, you know, Cowboys mm-hmm. to Girls, and he did uh, My Crowd. He just had that unique style that you knew when when he was playing drums that the whole rhythm, the rhythm track was going to be together. He was a tight gentleman and, and, and a very funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you just mentioned Crystal Blue uh, Persuasion, uh, which was on another label, and um, I didn't see any reference to this anywhere else, but uh, the label is called Uptight, which was... Uh, yes, that was part of Fania. What had happened was they thought they weren't getting enough success under a, a Spanish label name like Fania, so they created another label as a subsidiary, and they called it Uptight Records, hoping that uh, a lot of the American stations w- w- would play Joe Batan. Actually, what had happened was uh, Morris Levy from Mula Records uh, recorded Tommy James, and they had promised us that they would help us with one of Tommy James' songs. But actually, that didn't transpire because when, the, when we did our rendition, uh, Morris Levy released Tommy James. And what Tommy James did was he took all of the, the pop stations, but he took all the black stations as well. <laughs> so what was left for Joe Batan was, uh, you know, nominal. Right. And uh, well, all we could do was, um, we sold maybe 100,000 records, but he went on to sell 2 million. Right. Um, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about the, the sounds from the streets of East Harlem, um, um, you know, like, for example, the album El Barro. Um, uh, were you and others in East Harlem inspired by the Black Panther movement? Because that was pretty much protest music. Well, of course, you got to understand the era that we were in, you know, the, 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 the war. Uh, politics, civil rights, and all these things that were going on, there was sort of like a different wave and atmosphere throughout the schools and the colleges across the nation. So the music had to be directly influenced, and we were no different. I believe everybody touched it uh, some way, trying to get involved with what, what was happening with the movement around the country, you know, anti-war, uh, you know, peace, brutality, the things that were going on. So, sure, right. yes, we were very uh, influenced by this. Yeah, I was looking. I was looking at the title on um, on that album actually, and it was really it really touched me in terms of how accurate you guys were yourself, Tito Puente, Pete Rodriguez, all those cats who were involved in, on that label on that album, I should say. And it's also quite fitting to the Obama campaign for presidency relating to hope. And once again, um, you're you're on cue, man. You're on cue, and I really think that people got to come out and see you September 23rd, come and do your thing. So um, we're looking forward to that. 